Welcome back to the Lars Resort. Back, back again this this week. See, this is this is the thing with the resort. It it, it turns up, it's open for business when you least expect it. I just I kind of felt like doing another one now, and I'm trying to up the frequency on these a little bit, and and make them shorter. By God, the last one disgracefully long. There was no there was no need for this. <laughs> it was uncalled for. But I uh, hope you guys stuck with most of it anyway. And this is, I mean, just in case you've forgotten, this is the Lars Resort, uh, brought to you by Betson, as always. And I, I guess i got to start, I mean, we, I've been neglecting the weather news recently. The weather is nice. But the weather is definitely sort of, let's get all the work done with and head to the park with the dog type of weather today in our nation's capital. Uh, and and I'm following on from that, corrections and apologies section uh, not a big one. Just I for the last episode, I completely forgot that Destiny Destiny Udogi is a thing. When I sort of talked about Tottenham's sort of uh, uh, transfer things about maybe needing a new left back, Destiny Udogi he exists. He's been playing for Udinese all year. It's just he was bought and immediately loaned out, and I just kind of forgot that he existed. It happens. Uh, sorry about that. And the thing about Destiny Udogi, uh, who I now remember exists. Uh, is that uh, he is the kind of young, sort of uh, uh, exciting, you know, talented guy who you can imagine uh, Arsh Postacoglu looking forward to working with, uh, someone who will be receptive to instruction, to be, can, be, um, can be shaped according to the wishes of, of, of Postacoglu and, and stuff like that. Uh, looking at his numbers from the season in Serie A, he, he's got some pretty impressive numbers in terms of progressing the ball, carrying the ball forwards, going past people. Uh, very reasonable uh, tackling numbers as well. So, so that's, that's pretty promising. Pretty promising stuff. I can't can't like claim to have watched uh, Udinese a lot this season, but uh, but that seems kind of exciting. The only thing that's interesting about him, or interesting, slightly worrying, is that he has been playing uh, more as a wing back or just as a wing back uh, this season for Udinese. Uh, and and he's certainly a very attack minded young man. So when you already have Pedro Porro on the other fullback. Hmm, maybe, I mean, it does kind of suggest maybe Spurs should consider continuing the three at the back thing, even if that's not quite how Postacoglu has, has, has done it at Celtic, we will see. Certainly, um, your, 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 your central defenders will have to... Uh, will have to be very, very good if you can have Pedro Porro and a very young sort of wing-backy type man on the left side as well. Maybe you need to have an absolutely ace holding midfielder to help them out. Is is Hoiberg or, or Eric Dyer even that guy? Not not sure about that. So uh, intriguing uh, to see how Tottenham sort of figure that stuff, stuff out over the summer. But that's not what I wanted this podcast to be about. God knows we've spoken enough about Tottenham. Uh, this week, uh, there was a European final uh, that that West Ham won, and 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 people had a grand time in in Prague, which is a great city to to go on a little uh, expedition to. I, I have to say, and and I continue to be slightly torn on this. I'm not going to repeat myself too much, but I was. Uh, Experience, I mean, cognitive dissonance is the phrase, isn't it? When you have two sort of contradictory ideas and you kind of wholeheartedly believe in both of them and you can't really uh, square that uh, is what I felt quite strongly as the game went on. Because there's the thing. Um, if you look, if you go back and you, you see a list of cup winners, FA Cup and League Cup winners in English football, and you will see that in like the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was like a rich smorgasbord of players who won who won the cup. You know, there were, there were some periods where teams were, were more successful than others, of course, but, you know, the names, they kind of changed. 
pretty consistently. Whereas, of course, the last two decades in particular, two and a half decades, it's it's really been the same guys most of the time. Uh, this is the usual suspects. You have some exceptions. You've got Portsmouth winning the FA Cup. You've got uh, Wigan winning the FA Cup. You've got Swansea winning the League Cup. It does occasionally happen, but mostly it is the usual suspects who gets to the final or certainly wins the final. And, and I think that that's just another area where the sort of it, it's become... It's become totally dominated by the big teams, uh, and the di- the difference, you know, the the gap between them and the rest just feels like it's getting bigger. Even though the Premier League, of course, distribute money more evenly than than quite a few other uh, top divisions do. But the, the point I'm getting at is, if you're a fan of a club that's not one of the wealthiest clubs in the division. Before you could go into the season thinking that you had a chance, maybe not to do something in the league. I imagine people, broadly speaking, had a good idea of who was going to be good in the league back then as well. Uh, but certainly in the cups, you know, you can tell just from who won it. You know, there's a lot of variation there, and, and and most fans of a lot of clubs have experienced at some point in their lifetime that thing of you know going to a big cup final making a weekend of it or making a a big trip of it and and having that sort of glorious moment but but we're not seeing that quite so much anymore uh because the it's just it's it's the same old teams and and when you look at west ham um getting to this final and you see you know thousands and thousands of people going to prague having a lovely time uh, chanting and, and drinking beer in the sun Obviously, West Ham fans have sat through a lot of nonsense and rubbish the last couple of decades. You'd have to have a heart of, of stone not to think, you know, that's that's just good and, and positive. And it's nice uh, that they get to have a, a, a day. It's nice that fans of a club that's not in the sort of elite gets to have that kind of experience. And maybe the Europa Conference League, by by dint of the uh, how the qualifying works, maybe that can be a route for sort of um, the sort of mid-ranking teams in England to, to and their fans to experience this sort of grand day out. And I don't begrudge them that at all. I, I really don't. At the same time, they it was the, the tournament was won by the team that's by far the wealthiest of the one that of the ones that were in it. I mean, I guess wealth is a relative term in terms of of football, but certainly the team that has the highest revenue. If you look at the sort of the Deloitte uh, Money League, as they call it, the sort of list of the 30 teams in the world with the highest uh, turnover, uh, of the teams that were in the group stage of the Europa Conference League, only two figure on the money list. It's West Ham, who are 15th in the last edition, and uh, and Villarreal, who I think were 29th or something. Uh, Fiorentina, not in the top 30, uh, suffice to say, and no one else in the the tournament uh, was. Now, that doesn't really... I mean, you still have to win the games doesn't mean it doesn't invalidate the win at all and a uh, shout out to Tottenham who who managed to get themselves knocked out uh, last season but, but but it was the same thing last year in the sense that last year you also had by my reckoning in the group stage of the Europa Conference League you had two teams that were in that year's sort of Deloitte top 30 and that would have been that would have been Spurs and, and Roma and again wouldn't you know it it was uh, Roma who went out to went on to win it so in the two seasons this tournament has existed both seasons you've had two sort of uh, teams from the moneyed elite and both seasons one of them have won it i just think that's 
if that continues to happen, that that wasn't the point of that tournament. I don't need to go more into it, but I, I believe quite firmly if we get if we get into a cycle where it's like the team from Italy or the team from Spain or the a mid-table team from England who win it every year, that kind of defeats the purpose of that tournament a little bit. So I kind of hope we don't see that. But I don't know how you solve that. Uh, do you just arbitrarily ban a country from from taking part of this? Do you have like no? Uh, you could have no teams from the team that from the league that has the highest coefficient maybe but then that kind of feels like it feels a bit weird as well having a european tournament where no teams from one country so i don't know if there's a way of fixing this i guess we just gotta hope that the english teams like tottenham uh, manage to find a way of messing it up uh, so that it's not too sort of dominated by the money in the same way most uh, tournaments around the world where certainly in football are dominated by the money and it has been a thing i mean logically England probably should have won more Europa Leagues uh, these last two decades than they have. Uh, the English teams do tend to find very curious and interesting ways of, of getting knocked out uh, by these tournaments. I mean, again, shout out to Tottenham, who who did go out of the Europa League uh, by losing to a team whose manager was in prison at the time. I mean, I think that's got to be some kind of uh, some kind of record. Uh, pretty extraordinary stuff uh, by, by Mourinho's Tottenham. So, it, it, so sometimes they find a way to make these tournaments interesting. But it worries me. Yeah, we've had two editions of the Europa Conference League. Both times we've had two teams in the group stage from the sort of the, the, the moneyed elite. And in both cases, one of those have gone on to win it. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that doesn't continue. On the subject of West Ham, uh, Declan Rice, it's been basically confirmed that he is off, uh, that, that he's going somewhere. David Sullivan, uh, the, the co-owner, saying uh, on the radio that he has played his last game for the club. He will be sold somewhere. Interesting sales technique. Uh, to just declare that he is, he is definitely off. Not entirely sure if that is the way to, to extract the biggest possible transfer fee. Uh, in, instead of just saying the boy has a contract and uh, we'll, do, we'll do what we can to keep him. And then just w- w- <laughs> try to rag, get the maximum value. I don't know. Listen, I, I don't own a football club. Uh, who am I to criticize David Sullivan? But uh, cu- curious messaging from West Ham there. But apparently uh, Declan Rice is uh, is off. I've checked the sort of uh, I've checked the odds market, and and Arsenal are by some margin favourites to to land uh, Declan Rice, which which does make a ton of sense in a lot of different ways. Obviously, with uh, Granit Xhaka leaving, with uh, Thomas Partey falling, dropping off his form, dropping off quite badly in the second half of the season. It's clear they need uh, another player with some kind of physical presence in that midfield. You know he's young. He's he's goes on the homegrown quota. There's so much to like about Declan Rice. Um, I I wonder about Declan Rice, exactly what type of player he sees himself as and what type of player he wants to be. Because in my mind, he's always been. I mean, as I mean, if we separate midfielders, I mean, this is very very crude. Every midfielder is slightly different, but if you separate between someone who's a number six or someone who's more of a number eight someone who's more of a holding midfielder or someone who goes more box-to-box. I always saw Declan Rice as someone who, because maybe even because he used to play centre-half, as someone who could be like the next brilliant sort of English number six, the holding midfielder, the rock in front of of defence. But I get the sense that he wants to be a bit more than that. I mean, he's been a little bit more adventurous uh, for West Ham. And actually one of the categories where he really stands out in like the stats is is progressive carries and progressive passes, like moving. Progressive passes, by the way, that's a bad example because 
holding midfielders should be good at that as well. I mean, I think Rodri has something like the most progressive passes in the league this season. But progressive carries is interesting, that he actually, he carries the ball a lot. And, and that tallies with what we've seen. If you watch West Ham, he wins the ball a lot, uh, but, but then it's very much on him to play the first ball forwards or carry it forward as he if he can. And I've seen some commentary. I, I, did he say something about wanting to score more goals? Certainly, I think, well, not that it matters, but Roy Keane has been talking about this. I always find this a bit weird. Do you really want your holding midfielder to score more goals? I think there's a certain stigma. People see the holding midfielder is, is kind of like an easy job. You just kind of sit in front of the defense. I, I couldn't disagree more. I think that's an incredibly difficult job to do in football these days. There have been a couple of changes to the way the game has been played in the last couple of decades. A crucial one being, obviously, the back pass rule. When I hear players who were, like, great in the 80s talk about how ah, it's easy to play that role in midfield. Well, maybe it was when you were playing, because if you were in doubt, you could just knock it back to the goalkeeper and he could pick it up. Like You have to be an elite a sort of passer of the ball to play that role now for a good team. But also because you can't just kick people anymore the way you could uh, back in the day. So, so you have to be much cuter in how you win the ball. Your positioning has to be brilliant. So, so playing the sort of number six role, the role Rodri, Rodri plays for City... Uh, the role Fabinho did play very successfully for for Liverpool um, before he kind of lost his way a little bit. That type of job, you have to have amazing positional skills and incredible reading of the game. You have to be a very good passer, both in terms of keeping it moving and being able to uh, play diagonals out to the wingers, ideally being able to break the lines as well, looking more forwards. Uh, And you have to be very good at winning the ball without conceding fouls. Like, this is a tough skill set. Not that many players out there have it. I think they, they really struggle to find... Uh, proper good number of sixes. It's it's really difficult, and and I always thought if if Declan Rice can really nail that role, plus the fact that he's English, you know, he's gonna he's gonna have no shortage of of potential uh, employers out there. Uh, whereas if he wants to go a bit forward and be more of a number eight, I mean, I. I, I think those that there are more of those around. There are more good forward-facing midfielders out there than just absolutely elite number sixes. And I always kind of look at Declan Rice and think, you're probably better off trying to be the next, well, maybe not the next Sergio Busquets, because he's just a genius. I don't think that's a reasonable level to aim at. But, like, the next uh, the next Michael Carrick, more so than the next uh, Frank Lampard or Steven Gerrard, if you take my drift. Because, obviously, in a team as defensively minded as... West Ham, I guess it's been useful. You know, there's not a whole lot of creativity in that midfield, the way, certainly not the way they play. Having your, your best midfielder being able to move the ball forwards a bit has probably been very helpful. But when he steps in to Arsenal, for instance, does he replace Granit Xhaka in that sort of let's get forward into the box a little bit? Or, or, or does he uh, replace Thomas Partey in the slightly more defensive role? Interesting to see. Um, I kind of always figured he'd be better off specializing on that holding role uh, but uh, but I'm not entirely sure he feels the same way um other suitors for him I mean Bayern have been mentioned as a team who, who like him quite a lot but but with the transfer fee involved I mean Bayern Bayern are happy to go there in terms of wages they're happy to go pretty high on wages but they very they don't enjoy, they don't like paying huge transfer fees that's something that they tend to try to avoid uh, generally speaking there have been exceptions of course but I think that the size of the transfer fee makes it a little bit difficult uh, for Bayern to to, to do it uh, he's also been linked with a move to Manchester United which would have been more logical if they hadn't signed Casemiro. I, I do wonder if Declan Rice and Casemiro at the same time is kind of 
yeah, is that a little bit defensive? Are you? I, I, again, we spoke about it a lot last episode, so I, I just think the extra guy there next to Casemiro and Fernandez, you want someone who's a little bit more forward-facing. Though, again, that could be more the kind of role Declan Rice sees himself developing into. But it, it's not the thing he does the best right now, I don't think. One team I'm surprised isn't mentioned at all here might be a little bit FFP related, but but Chelsea. You know, Chelsea did try to get a deal uh, done for Ugarte, who, as you'll remember from our chat with Tor Christian Carlson earlier this spring, is a very sort of belt and braces, uh, win the ball and keep it simple type of midfielder. And they've, they're moving on to Caicedo, who is a very good midfielder, but again, slightly more sort of wants to get forward a little bit more. I don't think you want to sign Caicedo and just kind of tell him to sit there. Uh, with the the way uh, Chelsea's midfield looks, where you have Enzo Fernandez, who, yes, you can tell him to sit, but I think it's a waste. I think you want him to move a bit more forward. And, and Pochettino coming in in particular. Pochettino at Tottenham, really like playing with like super attack-minded fullbacks and then having a midfielder who can drop in uh, between the center halves and almost form a back three. You might remember you had Eric Dyer doing that kind of role and then Alderweireld sort of drifting out to the right and Vertonghen almost drifting out to the left a little bit and almost forming a back three um, and when the fullbacks kind of move, attacked, uh, attacked. You can easily imagine Declan Rice, who, by the way, of course, you might might have forgotten, spent a lot of time at Chelsea's academy. Uh, his family, I believe, were Chelsea fans as he grew up. You can easily imagine him fitting into there, playing that kind of role, and then freeing up Enzo Fernandez uh, to do his stuff and, and letting uh, Chelsea's uh, fullbacks be as attacking as Pochettino wants them to. That seems like a pretty good fit for me, kind of more so than, than Casado. Great player though he is, who's again more of a number eight. But I see in in, in certainly in the sort of next uh, next club odds for for Declan Rice, Chelsea not very high on on that list at all. It seems to be the market certainly thinks it's basically a done deal. Him going to Arsenal, and it probably is. Uh, but, but but I just thought I'd drop that in. I mean, maybe Chelsea can't get there on the transfer fee uh, because of their uh, much publicized uh, FFP problems. But then again, maybe there could be some kind of swap deal. Maybe some of the sort of random dudes they have hanging around in the squad would be happy to, to go to West Ham. I don't know. That probably would have been a way to make it happen. But it seems like he's going to Arsenal. And obviously, you see that being a very, very good fit. It is a big transfer fee. I mean, you see 90 million mentioned. I'd be surprised if, if it's any less than that um but, but again if you're Mikel Arteta at Arsenal you you can probably go to the owners now not so much the director Edu but if you together with Edu if you agree Declan Rice is the guy he's perfect for our midfield and and I, I would agree I think he is uh then you go to the owners and say listen look at the season we just delivered you look at what our young players are, are doing we need a little bit more to be able to challenge uh, consistently this guy we think is the guy for our midfield just get us the money if you, i think you have a pretty strong case then internally after the season you just delivered so i don't imagine that being a, a big problem uh, but declan rice on the move uh, so it seems it's another big game this week it's not just it's not just west ham fiorentina that it's all about it is there is a champions league final being played this weekend uh, between uh, Inter and Manchester City. 
Are, are you hyped for this? I mean, I, I kind of am because, again, it's the Alling Holland factor. I have a sort of slight sort of emotional connection to, to him and, uh, and, and seeing a, a guy from my sort of hometown potentially lifting a, a Champions League trophy is, is very, very surreal for me. I have, I have to be honest. That's very, very weird. Um, I mean, I remember as a kid just being excited that we had uh, Alling Holland's dad and that he was he was in the national team, and I thought that was really cool. Now, I don't really know how to even process this, and I I wonder what it's like being a kid who who loves football growing up in Brunei now. I mean, it must be. I said it must be pretty mind-blowing, but then again, when you're a kid, you just kind of think, oh, it's totally normal. Of course someone from this town is is the best. That makes total sense. Why, why wouldn't it be like that? Uh, but, but yeah, that that's a, an exciting thing for me. But I think maybe for neutrals, given that City isn't the most popular team out there amongst neutrals, and Inter isn't the this season's Inter anyway, not the most interesting team in the world, probably you might not be massively hyped for this game. If you're not, can I just give a shout-out, a rare shout-out on the last resort uh, to, to the TIFO guys on, on YouTube? They've done a sort of tactical breakdown of, of how Inter could do something to upset Man City here. I'm not going to steal all of it. I'm just going to point you in the direction of, of TIFO on, on YouTube because they, they do actually, Sam Ty presenting, he actually does a really good job making the case for why Inter could spring an upset here. And again, I'm not going to steal all his points, but I, I will... Uh, I said I was reproduce slightly steal the point about interplay they're very compact I mean again I, I did know that myself before I saw it on YouTube but but the point is they, they do knock it long to Jekyll quite a lot and we could sort of we can dismiss that as a sort of slightly simple sort of eh, knock it long to Jekyll whatever but but if you're going to try to get something out of City one of the things City are so good at, of course, is winning the ball high up the field and, and, and strangling you in that way and not letting you play football. But if you just... I have this, again, as you might know, I have this theory that the target man could make a return and, and become fashionable again. Because with so many teams pressing high, if you have the option of just going over the press and you have a player who can consistently you know, win the challenge and, and, and get control of the ball... I think that's a good strategy, and that's something Inter theoretically can do. They're going to look to play it over City's press. They're going to look to hit it early to, to Dzeko, and then he's going to try to link up with Lautaro Martinez and, and do some shenanigans. And you can see that being a thing. You can see that being a thing. We've also seen, I guess, some examples. Spurs being one. Spurs somehow beat Man City uh, earlier uh, earlier this year. Teams that kind of sit back and compress the space. Uh, City don't always find ways of opening them up. Now, um, I do think having Alling Holland helps a little bit because you do have a physical option if you want to start throwing crosses into the box. Though I do think, as I mentioned in the last episode, City a little bit more vulnerable at the back as much as they've been very, very impressive in the second half of the season. Across the season, just 34% clean sheets uh, versus 55% last season. And I also, this is also a very good stat I've stolen from somewhere else. Uh, the excellent Ryan Owen Hanlon from ESPN uh, pointed out that City allowed 598 opponent touches inside their own penalty area this Premier League season. Now that is the most of any of Pep Guardiola's seven seasons with the club. That is a mind-blowing stat. When you think of how good City have been this year, uh, the fact that they've allowed more opponent touches in the box, even then in the first season, Guardiola was there when they had like Bakari Sanya and like these weirdos knocking around still. Uh, so really, City, there is a certain vulnerability there. And that is the trade-off, I guess, between having Alling Holland up front. You have marginally less control because you have a proper striker instead of a false nine. They've mitigated some of that 
that by doing this sort of John Stones hybrid thing, moving him into midfield. But there is still a bit of a vulnerability there, and they do concede some goals, which again is why one of my betting suggestions was as a City to win and, and both teams to score here. Um, but the upside to that is they do have more variety in attack. They can go long, they can hit it to the big man, they can go early to the fast man, uh, Aling Holland being uniquely both a fast man and a big man. Uh, and I do think even though Inter being a sort of compact defensive team who can hit it to Dzeko and then later in the game hit it to Lukaku, I just think the quality of City is such that they, they should find the goal they need and and, and get the win. Uh, but, but, but that's that perspective, at least, when you look at the game in that way, uh, maybe there could be uh, some interest in it. But at least when you look at it from that perspective and you see, okay, Inter do have, as a tactical matchup, it's not perfect for, for City. Uh, Inter do have ways of hurting them specifically by bypassing the press, going long to Dzeko. And that is something that uh, City might struggle a bit with. Uh, does that make you more excited about the game? I mean, that's the kind of nerdy stuff that makes me think, oh, yeah, could be could be interesting. Could be more interesting than I thought this way. At the end of the day, I still kind of think uh, City will win it. Um, ah, I forgot. I was going to say there was. There's been another. There's been a big transfer, and it's not just the uh, pre-transfer of uh, Declan Rice of, of the club declaring that he is off, but uh, Alexis McAllister gone gone to Liverpool for well for some kind of price tag. There's been a pretty big spread in terms of the price tag being reported. I've, I've kind of seen everything from thirty-five to fifty-five million pounds. Either way, price tag seems reasonable. Uh, for for the kind of player he is, I, I think he'll fit in pretty well at Liverpool. He's someone who who, who does a lot uh, as a midfielder. He's he's pretty versatile. You can use him again in this whole sort of number six, number eight, number ten discussion. He's certainly more of a number ten or uh, than he is a number six, but he has been played both in a double pivot and as a more traditional attacking midfielder. Definitely a midfielder who has a bit of everything. And sort of looking at his numbers for this season, he kind of excels at, at a range of things, from from passing the ball uh, forwards to uh, to getting past people uh, with the ball to getting a, a good number of shots off and also uh, putting in a very respectable number of, of tackles for, uh, for what is primarily an attack-minded midfielder. So you can see him fitting in to the Jurgen Klopp system. He has sort of uh, he has a lot of skill on the ball and is someone who can contribute in an attacking sense but he's also not afraid of putting a proper shift in off the ball that is what you need as a midfielder for Jurgen Klopp's teams um I've been slightly obsessed with this I've talked about it too much but like how do you reconstruct that midfield to allow uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold to do his thing at fullback again? Well, we don't know if they're even going to do that maybe they'll continue with this sort of Liverpool version of what City have done, of moving Trent Alexander-Arnold into midfield in possession. Uh, you wonder what happens with uh, Andy Robertson then. We don't need to have that conversation again. I still think that Liverpool midfield can do with another addition, uh, someone who is uh, who excels off the ball and covers uh, even more ground off the ball and as a presser and as a ball winner than what Alexis McAllister does. I suppose that's one of the reasons you decide we're not going to try to spend 100 million plus 
on uh, on Jude Bellingham, who probably doesn't want to come here anyway. Uh, instead, we're going to take that money and try to spend it on two midfielders. Uh, one who, who does a bit going forward, but also is useful off the ball, and one who is a sort of off-the-ball, uh, covers-ground pressing machine. I suspect... Uh, that's what they'll do, and they'll bring in another midfielder instead of uh, trying to get Jude Bellingham, who can kind of do everything. Um, I think Alexis McAllister will fit in. Uh, I think the price tag is is not crazy, given that you're you're signing a player from another Premier League team who's proven they can play very well in the Premier League. So so thumbs up, I like it. Uh, it's one of the things to look out for this summer. How are Liverpool restructuring their midfield? And this seems like a really interesting step in the in, in well the right direction. Time will tell, but a, a good direction. Also, I guess, in signing him, I think there's an acknowledgement that uh, Thiago Alcantara hasn't quite worked out, hasn't quite done what you were hoping him to do in that midfield. He has played some really good games for Liverpool, and he is a really good player, but there is an availability issue with him. He's just hurt too often. He misses too many games. So you need someone else in that midfield who can move the ball forwards and and, and do some of those things. And and McAllister, again, his combination of of stuff on the ball and stuff off the ball, uh, he seems to fit in very well there. So I like that uh, signing. A little bit, a little bit. I'm just got a long betting section this time because uh, this should have been part of my uh, look ahead to the Champions League final chat. It's just I'd kind of forgotten about McAllister so we're just going to do it like this. I'm going to write the big sort of uh, betting preview for the website after I've finished editing this, but I will again be putting up a range of side of interesting side bets because that is also one of the ways I certainly approach these sort of big games. Uh, is that I tend to look like to look at them and find what are the sort of interesting side bets. Of course, I think a sort of City win with uh, both teams to score or just a comfortable City win. I think as much as we try to talk up Inter at the end of the day, City are a better football team and we should see that uh, in in this game. And I I certainly think for our sort of main bet for the game, I I think City City minus one on an Asian handicap, so minus 1.0. So you you win if City win by two goals or more. Uh, You get your stake returned if they win by just one goal. I think that's a very viable bet here. I'm not convinced Inter can keep it tight and take it to extra time. I think City thinks City will win the game. But... For sort of like side bets, uh, little interesting things that you can kind of put some stakes on if you're if you're interested. Uh, th- there's various stuff. I'm going to look at cards again. Like this didn't work out for us in the FA Cup final. I kind of misread that game a little bit, though I'm still bitter about Casemiro not being booked. God, how did that? Anyway, let's not get into it. Um, but, but I'm going to look at some cards again, and uh, we're going to do the basic thing that I didn't do for that game that I should have done for that game, which is the most basic bet you can ever ever put in a Man City game right now is for whichever fullback is up against Jack Grealish he will probably pick up a yellow card <laughs> and and that held true in the FA Cup final with uh, with Aaron Van Bissaka even though he usually doesn't get booked very often this time he's up against uh, Denzel Dumfries and, and Barella I guess in a wingback system you've got Dumfries being the wingback and Barella being the midfielder on that side of the field and I think I mean the odds on Dumfries being booked is just uh, 270 which isn't amazing but that's just you know Betson and all other bookmakers are very aware on the effect uh, Jack Grealish has on the fullbacks he comes up against I still think that's a that's a viable bet because Dumfries not the tidiest defender in the world and someone who's going to have to get forward if Inter are going to try to do anything so he might get caught out of position a few times possible route to a booking uh, there as well so I think Dumfries to get booked at 2.70 is interesting here and I would throw in Barella as well 
he sort of patrols that right side of the midfield three for Inter. He's picked up six bookings this season in the league for them, the second most in the team, uh, picks up quite a few bookings. And again, as Inter look to keep Jack Grealish quiet, I wouldn't be surprised to see Barella give him a bit of a kicking and eventually pick up a yellow card. Third thing is here, um, next thing is here, keep an eye on the team sheet, because if Brozovic starts... He might not. It might be Mkhitaryan. But if Brozovic starts, he has picked up nine yellow cards in 19 starts for Inter this season and, and, and nine games off the bench. Uh, Brozovic loves the booking. <laughs> he is uh, he is not shy in terms of tackling and, and making, a, making a nuisance of himself. If he starts, I think he's an interesting pick to pick up a booking. If he comes on, you'll have to judge what kind of game it is. Is it is, is stuff happening? Is it open? Is it foul-tempered? Uh, are, City cha- are, are Inter chasing? Are Inter trying to make maybe hold on to an unlikely lead but if Brozovic comes on see what kind of game state you have and what kind of price you get for him to get a booking live that could also be a thing I have to say like as side bets go but bookings are fun for me to put just small stakes you know obviously don't go crazy with it but just a small stake on a booking because it's just very satisfying when it works out and the referee flashes the card and the player looks sad and and you you get a small uh, reward for it I, that's something I enjoy a lot there are a few other things because I think we agree Inter will sit deep for most of this game I think we might see City take some shots and maybe in some shots from range it's not something City do that often but Ilkay Gundogan is uh, 195 with Betson to have a shot on target at some point in this game. I think that's a very good price because he's been on such a good run recently of getting big goals. You must figure he's going to fancy himself to try to have a shot at some point and to get one on target at nearly evens. Like, I think it's a much better than 50% chance of Gundogan having a shot on target at some point. So Gundogan to have a shot at target at 195 is, is a bet I like. Kevin De Bruyne to have a shot on target at 162, kind of boring probably will happen um, but if you're liking shots from range as something that might happen Kevin De Bruyne to score from outside the box is 8.0 uh, odds I, I think that's a good that's a high price if you're as a long shot pun intended I think that might be worth something here and again on Ilkay Gundogan Ilkay Gundogan to score at any time at 3.75 given his recent form and that we think City might have to take some shots from range, um, or he makes his clever runs into the box, that sort of thing. Uh, I think that's worth looking at. And also, Erling Haaland to score a header at 8.50. Now, he's not an amazing header of the ball, Erling Haaland, weirdly, for a guy who's that big, for someone who has the body of of a big man. He can get better at heading the ball, but I just think we'll see Inter sit deep here. City might end up playing more crosses into the box than usual, so I just think 8.50 is a big price for Haaland to get his head onto something. Um, Another thing, a penalty in the game? That could be something, you know, We, with the handball law in particular being what it is, we think Inter is going to have to bunker down, City might start flinging like crosses and shots into the box. What do you think the chances that it hits an Inter arm and you get a contested uh, penalty decision, maybe even VAR getting involved, this sort of stuff, can see that happening. Uh, 285 is the price for a penalty in the game with bets on. But you can go even further there and say the home team, which City have been designated uh, in this game, uh, to score a penalty, City to score a penalty is 450, which is kind of, yeah, the way we think this game will pan out. Yeah, that's uh, that's maybe an interesting one. That, those are some of my thoughts anyway from looking at it. Uh, some bets that I think are interesting given how we think the game will play out. 
I think that's a fun approach to a game like this. Just pick various little things and set small stakes here and there. But obviously, like, gamble responsibly. We've talked about this. Only bet with with money you can afford to lose. Only do it as, like, a small thing to make the game a little bit more exciting. Anytime you see someone on, like, social media going, like, oh, follow my thing and, and make money, it's nonsense. That's just not what it is. It's it's just a bit of fun. It's a bit. Of, it's a way to kind of enhance our enjoyment on the game. And the second betting is anything else than that. I implore you, do not do it anymore. Anyway, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at for this game. I hope we get an exciting occasion. Even though Inter are quite a defensive outfit, I do think there's... The, as the good people of TIFO pointed out, I think the tactical matchup is is kind of interesting, uh, and so maybe we can have a more exciting final uh, as a neutral than either Roma Sevilla or, or West Ham Friuntina was, because let's be honest, they were not great games, but uh, maybe this could be fun, who knows. Uh, and, and, and thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll catch you again uh, next week, where I think we're going to get stuck into these uh, seasoned review thingies. Yeah, let's let's do that. I'm just postponing. I'm pushing that because I don't want to confront my own predictions. My predictions were bad this year, and I think they've been mostly sort of erased from the internet. But not to worry, I will dig them up in my own uh, archives and uh, expose myself because I believe in accountable uh, podcasting. I think it's very important if you like make big predictions and they don't pan out. You gotta you gotta face the music, and we will do that uh, in the next episodes. Uh, hopefully, see you then. <laughs>